Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. Today's episode of the podcast is going to be a little different. In a moment I'll hand over to my colleague, Deputy Editor Ellen Halliday, who hosted a recording of one of our Prospect Conversation pieces where we bring together two thinkers with different views on a topic to find out what they can agree on. The question for this month's conversation was, is green growth the future? And we brought together Kate Rayworth and Sam Fankhauser to discuss the limits of economic growth, the challenges of climate change and what a prosperous life really looks like. You can find the full piece on our website and listen on for an audio extract from their conversation. I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Fankhauser, who is Professor of Climate Change Economics and Policy at the Smith School and the School of Geography and the Environment at Oxford University, and Kate Rayworth, who is author of Donut Economics and co-founder of the Donut Economics Action Lab. She also teaches at Oxford University in the Environmental Change Institute. In the world today, we face a major challenge to improve the lives and livelihoods of a growing global population and to address climate change and its root causes, which, if we continue on our current path of resource exploitation and emissions creation, will undermine those livelihoods anyway. Conventional economic thinking, as we'll hopefully see in the course of this conversation, is focused on growth. But as we look around us and assess the impact of our historic focus on growth, on the planet and on humanity, some people are starting to wonder whether we need to fundamentally reassess what growth means and whether it is the right goal after all. So basically, let's start with what may be a unifying question off the bat. We're facing this huge challenge to make people's lives better and also to address the causes and consequences of climate change. Is enough consideration being given to both of these concerns at the moment? I would say that the planetary boundaries are real and they often get ignored. So when when I talk about growth and I I sort of make a pitch for green growth, I'm talking about growth that sort of is within the planetary limits that we all face. The reality is that the uh, growth sort of in a four degree, five degree warming world isn't something that will happen, you know, planetary boundaries and being looking after the planet is a precondition for growth. So if I talk about growth, it isn't the sort of deregulation driven growth. It is growth that is well regulated and respects planetary boundaries. And Kate, what about you? What's Are we currently thinking enough about both making people's lives better and 
securing a sustainable future? Not at all, because, and I think Sam would agree with this, I hope, let, let's start where I'm sure we, we agree. Because I, I studied economics 30 years ago, I sit with students who study economics today, economics being the mother tongue of public policy. It still does not begin as it should in every course in the world with recognizing the state of humanity in the living world. And that's why I drew the donut 11 years ago to make it visible, right? So there are billions of people worldwide in countries rich and poor in this city, we're sitting in the heart of wealthy London. We could walk a few streets and find people sleeping in doorways, people going to food banks, right? There's poverty globally. Billions of people on this planet in 2023 cannot meet their most essential needs. And we are overshooting multiple of these planetary boundaries, Earth's life-supporting systems on which all life, human and other than human life, utterly depends. We are overshooting our pressure and disrupting and destabilizing at least six of the nine recognized planetary boundaries. This is the 21st century starting point. And actually, when I encounter young people coming into economics, education, or indeed politics, this is what they are aware of. This is they, the teenagers who are school, climate strikers, who when they were 15, 16 year old were marching. They're now in university and this is what they want an education to help them have the skills to tackle these challenges. So to me, this should be front and center of not only economics courses, of all any policy focused course, any business course, any business school, this is the situation. Now, how do we create an economy, a politics, a business, a legal system, a media system that actually helps to turn this story around? Mm -hmm. And until that is the starting point, this is not being taken seriously mm -hmm. enough. This is actually something we agree on. The economics profession, I'm an economist by background, has really, really underperformed when it comes to the environment. This is something where economics has had a, a really bad blind spot. The interesting thing is that hasn't always been the case. If you go back in the history of economics, the sort of early classical economics, economists, the economists of the 19th century, they were completely aware of environmental mm -hmm. constraints and the role of the environment in prosperity because they lived in those sort of agricultural societies. So that's something that that we have lost in the course mm. of, of economic thinking and have to relearn. I totally agree with what Sam just said that economics has massively under-recognized so-called the environment. I don't actually use that word anymore because the environment is literally mm -hmm. environ, what is around us and right now it's a, a conference room. Right? Yeah. We should be t using life because the environment is alive. So I talk about the living world. Economics has massively under-recognized that it is sub a subsystem of the living world and utterly dependent on it. And actually, I half joking, not joking, say that if aliens wanted to take down life on this planet, they don't need to bring their lasers, they don't need to even land it. All they need to do is convince us to talk about the impact we have on the rest of the living world as an environmental externality, because that's mm -hmm. what economists call it. And to draw it as a little wedge in between two supply and demand curves and say, oh yes, a little bit of a utility loss here. Because I think that is a devastating mm. mindset that is taught to students around the world. If we're gonna talk about the death of the living world's in environmental externality, mm -hmm. we give ourselves no chance yeah. of treating this well. Let me, let me sort of <laughs> find a place in, in the analysis of economics for externalities, because it does, 
it is a sort of a way of thinking about it that can be useful but it's useful for a particular type of environmental problem sorry to use that term <laughs> it's useful for problems that are sort of non-systemic marginal in the economic jargon things that you can sort of solve with with little tweaks but the challenge we now have of course is that we're talking about system-wide sure. planetary yeah. risks and there the externality concept it can help it can help in the sense that it's the language that decision makers tend to understand so it nudges them in the right direction but it doesn't yeah, mm-hmm. we have to think in terms of systems rather yeah. than marginal changes. That's absolutely right. So in this country, we have the government focusing heavily on conventional growth, but there are environmentally minded voices starting to talk about this concept of green growth that we're here today to discuss. So can we dig a little bit into what green growth means at the moment to policymakers and to both of you, Kate? Oh, Right. So let me just ask, are we talking about green growth globally or are we talking about it here in the UK and other high income countries? Do you think those are very different things? I do. I think the prospects for where where growth might occur and how Mm -hmm. green it could be, I believe it's very different in different places. And let me just say, so when I'm talking about growth, Mm -hmm. it's funny how this word we just use, we haven't even said growth of what? I mean, we can talk about the growth of our toenails. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the growth of let's say GDP, gross domestic product or national income, which is the total financial value of goods and services that are bought and sold in an economy in a year, mm-hmm. right? So when I say, when I'm talking about growth, it's that. Yeah. And for me, green has to be whatever it takes to come back within planetary boundaries at the speed and scale that's required to protect the life supporting systems of life on this only known living planet in the universe. Mm-hmm. So that's what the standard of green has to be. And I personally believe if we're talking now about high income countries from where we begin, I cannot see a feasible route. I do not believe it's going to be possible for them to continue having a rising national income of Mm -hmm. goods and services sold while coming back within planetary boundaries or anything like the speed and Mm -hmm. scale required. So I I do not believe it's the future. And I believe we need a totally different vision and mindset and action and policies to go in a different direction. In this country, mm-hmm. we've had both Liz Truss saying mm-hmm. growth, 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 and now Keir Starmer saying growth, 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 and he's just issued five missions for the UK economy, and one of them is to have the highest sustained rate of growth in the G7, which I mm-hmm. find a tragic concept that that is a mission at mm-hmm. this moment in time. So. Politicians are utterly locked in. There's only a couple, Caroline Lucas, Clive Lewis, in this country, they're the only two I know of who I've heard question, challenge, and speak to a different vision. Mm -hmm. We urgently need to create a language which allows politicians to speak to actually the vision that I'm sure they encounter on the doorstep, Mm -hmm. which is I want to be part of a thriving world. My kids want a stable climate. I want the healthy air. I want jobs and community and stability. That is what we ultimately value, and it's not going to be wrapped up in a future that is labelled growth. I would agree that the growth narrative, certainly in this country, is is sort of simplistic, misguided in the sense that it is it is growth of of GDP in the sense of the accumulation of goods and services that we produce, so sort of the growth on the pile of stuff that we do, and that that doesn't work. That's not going to give us sustainability. But what 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 I would say to that is that you said the GDP is just a the pile of things we produce, and that's true. The value, the value of the things. The value of the pile. But GDP can be 
measured in more than one way. And the second way in which GDP is measured and the counting tells you, gives you the same number, is the sum total of all the incomes that this economic activity produces. It's the sum total of all the wages, the rents, the interests, the taxes. And that sort of income is, is actually something that, you know, mm-hmm. is, is, is correlated and associated with, with people's prosperity and people's well-being. It is correlated with health outcome, for example. It's correlated with education outcome. Not perfectly, but it is correlated. What I would say is I believe we can, and that's an empirical question, but there's some evidence that says we can decouple our environmental footprint from our prosperity, from the growth of prosperity. Uh, in the UK, in, in climate change, that's starting to, to be measurable. Are there particular places where that's happened? What kind of evidence are we talking about? Yeah, there's 20 plus countries now, and we need to bring it up to 196, uh, but 20 plus countries where GDP is still going up and and emissions are coming down. So in the UK, since 1990, um, emissions have come down almost by 50%, not quite, it's 48 or 49 Mm -hmm. or something like that. GDP is, is up by... I don't know, 70, 80%, something like that. So if you translate that into a, a carbon footprint, we, we produce, uh, we, ne- we need three times less carbon per unit of GDP than we did in 1990. So that is a, a sort of a, 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 an encouraging trend. We're talking climate, and Kate will tell me I should talk about nature as well and various other things, and that's, <laughs> that, and that's true. Uh, but there is a sort of a, an evidence of how decoupling is being observed. If you reduce the amount of carbon that is embedded in our energy, uh, that reduces, that starts decoupling the link. If you reduce the amount of energy per unit of GDP, that starts decoupling that link as well. And if you just do the energy, per G, the energy, sorry, the carbon per energy, we're starting to see those big changes. We're starting to see we're getting out of coal, thankfully. We will be getting out of oil and gas. That hasn't happened yet, but renewables are getting cheaper. So that transition is really, I would argue, past the tipping point it's just a matter of the system having to go through the renewal of the of the capital stock but but that's starting to happen so a big part of the environmental footprint which is the carbon embedded in our energy that's starting to clean itself up why is that why is that important i would give you two reasons for that one is um the story i just told you about energy is there's a huge amount of investment needed mm-hmm. we need to uh, the projections are we will have an electricity system twice the size of today in a, in a zero carbon economy. So we have to clean up the one we already have and we have to build another one alongside it. That's a huge amount of investment and that investment has to come somewhere. And it's easier if it comes from a sizable economy rather than from a shrinking economy. That's one observation. The other one is more a political economy one. We have to do, we cannot do that against the will of the people. Mm-hmm. We have to bring people with us and people are broadly on board but not exclusively and if you tell them a story that says you know we have to save the environment and it comes at the expense Mm. of your welfare at the time when people are already worried about cost of livings and so on you will lose them and that then all of a sudden where i disagree with kate all of a sudden this becomes the slower route the route that says we're going to solve climate change by convincing people that degrowth is a good thing that for me is a very slow Sure. Because you have all manner of debate. Kate, how do you come back to Sam's idea that radically rethinking this idea of growth might be hard to sell and to bring people on board with? There's a generation that are growing up being told that the climate is destabilised. 
that earth is dying that we'll never be able to afford a home because we live in one here in the UK we're in one of the most unequal high income countries that the richest 1% of people in the world already own half of the world's wealth I don't find people in that generation thinking oh the solution to this is for global economy just to keep getting bigger and our nation's economy to get getting bigger I mean there's an absurdity in the fact that the UK since we're right here the UK and high income nations today are richer than any nation has ever been in the history of humanity and yet our politicians and their economic advisors will tell them that solutions to our problems lies in yet more growth endlessly mm-hmm. there is an insanity in this and what can that possibly look like from bangladesh from malawi from tanzania from india that this nation that is so rich and has already consumed far more of its equitable resources and has damaging impacts on all other countries that it could only see a solution to its problems by having a yet bigger economy i i think so today's young people i i mm-hmm. encounter many who just are angry and have a very different vision from that mm-hmm. but there's so many things i i want to come back to we we agree and i i just pulled up on my laptop here because this is what sam's talking about in at least mm-hmm. 20 countries where there's data showing that even on a consumption basis their carbon consumption has fallen absolutely while their gdp has increased and mm-hmm. and here we can agree that's cause for celebration right mm-hmm. that is cause for celebration there is some decoupling going on of carbon emissions from gdp mm-hmm. it to me the real question is but how much by how much is it going down now these nations and i did it for the uk especially over about 20 years have had around 1 to 3% reduction in their consumption based carbon emissions. Mhm. If you turn to a climate scientist and say how fast does this need to be happening? It's around 8 to 10%. So it's nothing like sufficient. And so for me it's really really important as a kind of conceptual category to mm-hmm. distinguish between absolute decoupling which is carbon going down and sufficient absolute decoupling and sufficient absolute decoupling means coming back down within planetary boundaries at the speed and scale required mm-hmm. and that is nowhere close to happening and there's not a single high income country mm-hmm. that is anywhere close to that and the metaphor i'd use is you know if i say hey the train leaves in 3 minutes we are going to have to sprint to make it and if you break into a slow jog and say look look i'm running Yeah, what well, I'm sorry you might be so called running, but you ain't going to make that train. We're not going to make that train if you do a slow jog. We have to sprint. And that's what I feel like we're doing. And mm-hmm. I I see it in parliaments and institutions around the world, people triumphing, triumphing green growth. Mm-hmm. This is a slow jog towards a future that's just about to leave. It's a powerful narrative, the one that you've told us, but what levers can we pull to change the way people and people think governments think governments build their economies is it a question of law regulation do international institutions have a role what do we do next so i think it's essential to recognize that billions of people around the world cannot still meet their most basic needs and they need i believe growth right if ever there was a place for growth sure. it's in the incomes it's in the building schools and hospitals and good lives for people who are currently living in great deprivation and that's all the more reason why high income countries like this one that massively and wastefully use energy mm-hmm. 
and materials, we need to reduce our energy use and our material use mm -hmm. to make space for others whose materials and energy we've actually been over consuming for decades. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? You invest in health. You, I mean, some of these things are really straightforward. You invest in health, you invest in education, you invest in transport and mobility that is low carbon and low material use mm -hmm. so that it, you invest in public services, right? It's mm -hmm. shown time and again that when we provide mass transit, it is way more effective and actually lower cost and healthier and cleaner mm -hmm. than everybody buying cars, whether they are fossil fuel cars or electric vehicles. Sure. We need to invest in public health, in public education, transport. And in high income countries, people's well-being and prosperity. I really do think we need to reclaim that concept of well-being and prosperity from thinking it's somebody's income rising 3% every year. We need to come back to what is a good life and how do we provision for that collectively, publicly, I mean, mm -hmm. And how do we relocate, particularly business and enterprise, within community and make it owned in such a way that it is not driven to endlessly extract profit, mm -hmm. which shows up as growth, but rather it is run and designed to create value for community, for the living world, for customers mm -hmm. that does not destroy life. So to me, deep right at the heart of it is redesigning the design of business itself. Mm -hmm. So that's a big challenge. Yeah, a well, challenge. <laughs> trying to, I, I would say, I would say absolutely trying yeah. to get green growth is, I think it's a bigger challenge because I can't see it working. And I, I will say one last thing here. I think there's a really ethical issue here that to aim for something that with our fingers half crossed, maybe behind our back, hoping, relying on technologies that don't exist or that the forerunners of them look extremely unreliable and potentially dangerous, to go for something that might or not, might not work. If it doesn't work, the consequences are monumental, not just for ourselves, but people worldwide. So I feel like there's a huge ethical obligation to take responsibility for a precautionary approach, which is to not only decarbonize as much as possible, mm -hmm. but to remove the inbuilt growth dependency that's been locked in and written into our economies through mm -hmm. 100 years of wee, cheap energy, whoa, lovely oil, fossils. We have to remove that growth dependency that's got structured into our economy and take a hard look at it. And that's mm. hard. That's hard. And that has to be done. Let's bank a few more things <laughs> that, we, that we agree on, but then let's start disagreeing again. I mean, we, we do agree on sort of this is a story of, of well-being, that, you know, well-being is the objective that, that we should try to sort of strive towards rather than material wealth or anything like that. We also agree that the speed is absolutely essential, but uh, that speed drives me towards using solutions that are on the shelf rather than, than sort of starting social experiments. I mean, I agree the youth, the young people, they're a beautiful, empowering, strong force for good at the moment. It's, it's really lovely to see how they, you know, start to engage and take a, uh, take a position. But we can't wait for them to be in, in decision-making powers in 20 years from now, when, when they can make decisions, we have to make the decisions now. We have to make the decisions with the current decision makers and we have to work around their mindset. And that, that for me, sort of, I feel like a story that, that, that talks about accepting that there's need for prosperity, growth in prosperity is an easier story to, to sell. And it's also a story that happens to work empirically. So, I mean, if we, if it was true that the, that the only way to solve the climate and the environmental problems was through degrowth, 
then we have to have that difficult conversation. Absolutely, because the planetary boundaries come first. But if you can solve the problem in a way that that makes it easier for the current decision makers and population at large to buy into it, then why not? It's always interesting to when you ask people, who is that population group that will have to reduce their income? Who are the people who have to degrow? as it were. We always agree, and that's good, I'm glad we do, that it can't be developing countries because they have a lot of catch-up to do in terms of living standards and and, and health and and social outcomes. But then when you start looking at this country, you sort of, you know, few people would say that the people are worried about their costs of living at the moment. People are on strike because they have seen their their real incomes going down over the last Mm. 10 years. Few people would go to those people and say, take it on the chin, it was good for the planet. That's not what we do. So who you know, who who is then left? Where do we sort of feel like degrowth is a acceptable strategy for which population group is that? So here we can agree. Income at at a certain range has a very strong correlation with health and education and life expectancy. And you see it very clearly when you look at per capita incomes across the world. Countries, when they go from around $1,000 to maybe twelve dollars to $15,000, very strong correlation. And then that correlation peters off because it's other things other than income alone that determine whether or not people's lives get better beyond that point. In the world, as I said earlier, the richest 1% of people own half the world's wealth. Mm-hmm. So let's not only talk about income, let's talk about wealth, because that is what generates the income of the wealthy, Mm -hmm. what they already own. So I think we can all very much agree if if 1% of people own half the world's wealth, who do we think should be reducing their wealth? It's it's got to come from the richest. It's got to come from the top 1%. I mean, I I agree that, you know, income distribution, certainly in this country, isn't fair. And that's a source of uh, you know, it, it, it sort of it, it sort of affects cohesion, but it also mm. sort of affects people's sort of well-being. People, you know, well-being. Yes. People are happier in places yes. that have a more equal sure. distribution. So that's true. But if you just think sort of the, the the numbers of the redistribution, you talk about the one percent, but the, the the CEOs are actually the the point one percent. But let's talk about the one percent in this country uh, they probably have a sort of a median income of uh, somewhere 150,000 or so huge you know big amounts of Mm. money Uh, but if you you know if you take a fraction of that away you have to share it with the other 99 percent so whatever you take away you have to divide by 99 so you take I don't know you take sort of a a 20,000 pounds away from the 150 uh, that sort of that gives you 2,000 per for everybody else in extra income. That sort of, is that gonna solve the problem? Well, I think when we put it in terms of literally taking money from one pocket and put it into another, it will inevitably seem inadequate. I'm not talking about literally transferring income. I'm talking about investing in a society that provides good health, good education, good schools for kids, so that people, everybody has access to a strong start in life. Everybody has local mobility, decent housing, investing it in public services, which will go so much further than saying, I'm going to redistribute from one pocket to another. So there's so much you can do by redistributing income. I also want to talk about redistributing wealth, but to me, the strongest is to pre-distribute 
the sources of wealth creation, investing in the health and education of every person to give them a lifelong opportunity to earn decently, and but transforming the economy so that it doesn't throw up these great inequalities in the first place. So I think just trying to take pockets of money from one place and put them in another, it will always sound inadequate. And But I'm also sure, Sam, that you don't disagree with the importance of redistributive policies in such an extraordinary unequal no, I, time. I agree and I also agree with the sort of the, that plea for investment in all those good things but for me that plea of investment is a facet of that makes you grow that grows you as a you know as a society. I think there should be far less air travel especially mm. luxury air travel close down some of these I think it's wonderful that countries like France have said we're closing down flight routes mm. that you can reach I think in three hours on a train right this is the sm- oh yeah I'm you're, you're great we're yeah. great you see yeah so, <laughs> so that to me is close down wasteful energy and material use consumption this just shouldn't exist let's edit them out and let's edit in the things that we do want effective public transport so it's of course some sectors absolutely need to grow and you know ultimately we may go through a phase of seeing investment a growth of and a nation's GDP could grow because it's investing. So it is, of course, some sectors absolutely need to grow. And, you know, ultimately, we may go through a phase of seeing investment, a growth of, and a nation's GDP could grow because it's investing. But to me, that's a phase. It's a transitionary phase. But I hear behind it still the mindset. I'm not saying I can't speak for yourself, but from the mainstream is, don't worry, we can still have growth. We're still in a growth-based world. And I believe we're not. We're in a deeply shifting and a bumpy road and GDP may go up or down, it needs to become an adjustment factor with a focus on a regenerative and distributive world. And GDP is the factor that adjusts rather than what we've got, which is GDP is the headline that steers, that governments aim to get elected by in a in a dysutopian reality. I cannot mm. believe the world we're in now that governments think they should stand for election on just promising growth. You've mentioned degrowth lots of times. I haven't said it once, but you've mentioned lots of times. And I, I often don't, I don't tend to use this word because I think it's very what often misunderstood and misused. And that's why I just use a different framing altogether. But I, for the sake of it, because Sam keeps mentioning degrowth, when I listen to the degrowth scholars in the degrowth community, such as Jason Hickel or Timothy Parikh, they define it as a planned reduction in energy and material use and consumption and or production to combat within planetary boundaries in a way that is just they don't mention gdp they don't mention in their definition of what they mean by degrowth mm. as whether income is going up or down so i think you also want in those terms you will you will and i also want what they're calling degrowth we want to come back within planetary boundaries in a way that meets the needs of all people the difference is that I think you, Sam, believe it can be done with a growing economy and they would say it can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm hugely doubtful that it can be done with a growing economy. Mm-hmm. Sam, you mentioned, you know, we need to use solutions that are off the shelf. Agree. There are many ideas that are already on that shelf we can use, such as public provisioning, such as um, employee-owned enterprises, community-owned, cooperatively-owned. There's, there's a whole history in this country and many others of enterprise that is not designed to maximize and extract profits for shareholders that then pushes and lobbies governments. So yes, I do believe we need massive investments in renewable 
transformation towards energy. We need massive investments in public transport. Build those bike lanes, put in dedicated bus lanes. We need good railway systems so that people stop traveling cars. But mm. also I do think we need, coming back to what you asked before, mm. I absolutely think we need regulations and caps because what we've seen time and time again in history mm-hmm. is that when energy is used more efficiently and therefore it becomes cheaper, People don't say, oh, now my energy is just costing me less. We drive further. We Use more. turn on more lights. Yes, I said yes. this is, of course, known as the, the, the Jevons rebound effect. And so we continue to increase. And that's why worldwide energy demand just keeps going up and up and up. So we've talked a little bit about sort of the political possibility. And a lot of the kind of positive action that we see is at a city level or a regional level. At which level can the most progress be made? I mean, it has to be all of the above. You know, it, we have to sort of push at that problem at the international level through the UN conventions. We have to put it at the national level in this country, at the devolved levels, and then go down to the cities and the communities. We have to do it at all levels. I think Kate is right. This is not something that will solve itself through voluntary action. This needs a strong state. This needs clear regulatory signals. Yeah. So I wrote a book, Donut Economics, which came out in 2017. I was amazed by the number of people who would approach me and say, I love the ideas and I want to do it, whether I'm a teacher in the classroom mm. or a startup or a founder or a mayor or a councillor. So lots sure. of local government politicians just started getting in touch and saying, well, could we do the donut here? Mm-hmm. And so we set up Donut Economics Action Lab mm-hmm. precisely to work with those people. And the name is very intentional. It's an action lab. It's working about working with people who are putting ideas into practice. Mm-hmm. So the people who came have been cities and districts and towns. And there's now over 70 mm-hmm. local governments worldwide that have approached us and said, we want to use these ideas because they help us bring about the transformation mm-hmm. that we already seek. And, and just coming back to the, the notion of prosperity, because I, I agree, we, we want well-being and prosperity. These are 70 places worldwide have said, yeah, living within the donut, meeting the needs of all of our people within the means of the planet. That is the vision of prosperity that we Mm -hmm. as an elected government here Mm -hmm. are having that conversation and and bringing about and celebrating this transition. So it's absolutely possible to to create that. Mm -hmm. Now, those have been mostly local governments. Amsterdam was the first and then they clearly inspired Brussels and Barcelona and Copenhagen and Glasgow and Ipo in Malaysia and El Monte in Chile and it's happening worldwide. What we're now seeing, what we're experiencing, is national governments. I was mm. did a webinar with the New Zealand Treasury last week. Um, I've had conversation with the Number Ten Data Unit, mm-hmm. the government of Bhutan, government of Canada. I think cities are incredibly important, not because that's the most important level. Mm. In fact, there's many, many things cities can't do. Two observations on decentralisation. I mean, I grew up in Switzerland, which has sort of thought the concept of decentralising to its logical conclusion. Everything is decentralised. So my first observation is that decentralisation in the UK is very dysfunctional. It doesn't actually work uh, in, in the sense that the decentralized entities, the cities and the council and so on, they, they've been hollowed out. They have next to no resources, next to no capacity, uh, next to no sort of, you know, space to do those things. So I agree, you know, doing it with the communities is absolutely important because a lot of decisions rest at that level. But that comes together with the, the you know, the recognition that you have to empower them. And certainly in this mm-hmm. country, you haven't done that. The second thing I want to say, and Kate, knows that story because I used it before. Uh, If you uh, decentralise decision-making, you kind of have to live with the decentralised decisions that are being made. And not everybody is sort of a a liberal Amsterdam 
type society. I, I grew again, uh, grew up in a, in a farming village and that's an inherently very, very, very conservative place. And if you get those people, you know, you empower them, um, they may not sort of make the decisions that we actually sort of think are right. There's a, there is, you know, there's a sort of a, a, a swell of conservatism uh, along, uh, amongst society that uh, that you can't just sort of assume away. You have to bring those people along. One of the ways that those people can be brought along, I think, is through the rise of deliberative democracy. And we're seeing climate assemblies, biodiversity assemblies. I contributed to the Biodiversity Assembly in Ireland recently, Climate Assembly in Amsterdam, that bring together a 100 randomly chosen people from all of those diversities of views mm -hmm. uh, who come up with extraordinary, far-sighted and thoughtful recommendations that enable politicians to go or, or challenge politicians mm -hmm. to go beyond what they were. Yeah, I'm a big fan of climate assemblies. I think they really work. I agree. Um, you know, the one that the, the UK wide climate assembly, um, there's two things that I particularly like about it. One, it was sort of almost like an educational tool. There was people who didn't engage with climate change or environmental problems. They were forced to, over a series of weekends, to really look deep into it, mm. and, and that changed their mind. That opened their, their sort of, uh, you mm -hmm. know, changed their worldview, and that's that's powerful. Uh, the other is that, uh, as you say, the sort of the, the pressure that then sort of, came up from that actually did sort of influence politicians. I don't know how much, but a little bit. Uh, people mm -hmm. say the six carbon budget that we now have our carbon targets for the, the late 2030s was made easier through the Climate Assembly. So I agree, that is a, a powerful thing to do. So they are opening up, widening, as it were, the Overton window of what's possible because ordinary citizens see yeah. that this is possible and desirable. And let's start to have a politics that actually responds to people's conception of well-being and thriving and the future we know we need to create. Thanks so much to Kate, Sam and Ellen for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, then grab a copy of our brand new issue of Prospect Magazine, which includes this conversation piece, as well as our cover story by Guy Standing on how the Crown cashes in on our seabed, journalist Hella Pick on Austrian anti-Semitism. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and Mike Brealey. It's honestly a joy. Sometimes it'll make you laugh, sometimes it'll make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcast or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.